Hello, fellow podcasters. Welcome to the Safasa podcast, where we discuss various topics around neurodiversity and autism spectrum disorder with self-advocates, program directors, and occupational therapists, families, and clinicians. I hope you enjoy what we have in store for you today. Uh, my name is Jessica Pijol. Jessica Joel Pijol. Uh, I am originally from Alberta, uh, but I live in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia now. I am, uh, I'm 30 years old. I am a stand-up comedian and I also spent some time in academia. Uh, I also have autism. That's, that's, that's my relevant credential here. <laughs> like I've, I've traveled the world. All right. And I have autism. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's the vital question at hand. Thank you. Um, Jessica, what is your favorite TV show or movie? Oh, this is a very morbid answer. My favorite uh, television show was the 2013 series of Hannibal, which is an adaption of both um, uh, Hannibal, uh, Silence of the Lambs, and The Red Dragon, books by uh, Thomas What's-His-Face. Uh, I'm a big fan of Moss Mickelson's acting ability and mm -hmm. also cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> probably shouldn't put it like that uh, big fan of Hannibal mm. I, I've never watched it before that's I'll it, note it. it it's a very sort of baroque gothic take on the uh, police procedural genre mm. um, I liked it a lot and my roommate found it sickening I, I've always found that uh, autistic people are more likely to have a certain resistance to gore and that sort of thing we could also be hypersensitive to it mm. but uh part of it is just the fictional not registering as viscerally uh when it comes to kind of pretend macabre violence it's also just very interesting philosophically though oh wow um in particular the main character has a um, he's, he's neurodivergent. He's not autistic. They sort of avoid the question of a particular diagnosis. Um, but he specifically has a, a hyper empathy that causes him to withdraw from people in a way that I found very thematically similar to uh, what autistics go through mm -hmm. with the world being chaotic and overwhelming and feeling the need to retreat due to not all the lack of interest, but excessive stimulus. Right. Whoa, I loved that explanation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, is also, there there's murder. <laughs> um, next question. Is there one thing that you want people to know about you? Uh, one thing that I want people to know about me? Uh, mostly that I am, I, I don't know. I don't know what I want people to most to know about me. Mostly what I try to communicate to people with how I act and how I dress and how I am in general is that I am, you know, I'm harmless. I'm friendly. Uh, you know, I've, I've never wanted people to feel intimidated by me or scared of me. And I know that I can be intimidating for a variety of reasons, mostly starting with my vocabulary and work, working on down. <laughs> But I think the thing that I most want people to know about me as an adult is that I am and I've always been incredibly open-minded and heterodox. 
And I think people have a tendency of just assuming my opinions before I state them uh, based on how I look and the kinds of words I use. And I just think that more people in general should be aware that no person is entirely one way or another. And that most people who are thinking do not have a completely homogeneous ideology. If you agree completely with one school of thought, it's probably because you're not thinking. I resonate with that. Yeah, that's, that's very true. You're that's so well spoken. I want to like write it down and save it in my quotes book. (laughs) (laughs) I I am a, I, I am a severe victim of autistic over articulation. I feel the need, I always feel like I'm never being specific enough. So Mm. then I just explain everything to death. (laughs) Mm. Honestly, that's, that's a really good way of getting what you want to get across. Make sure people know what your intentions are. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So next question, do you have a preferred term? So like self-advocate, individual with autism, autistic individual, How do you feel about? Well, this is always a tricky one for me because I am a, I have a a language background. And I would say that I think we overly focus on exact terms when it comes to like, what is an appropriate way to address somebody? You know, the entire like autistic person versus person with autism debate. I think has a many, many passionate advocates and has its own value as a conversation with many people who prefer, you know, autistic person and self-advocate being people who want to normalize their autism. They want to be, you know, an autistic person the way that I'm a brunette or I'm Catholic. They don't want the kind of distancing language that can result in us um, trying to humanize certain people and and distance them from the stigmatized condition they have. And on the other side, you have people who, you know, often caretakers, um, parents who compared to the average self-advocate, they are taking care of somebody who is far, uh, far less capable of taking care of themselves. And for them, the importance of emphasizing the humanity of the person they are looking after for is paramount. Um, But what I would generally say is we focus too much on language when generally speaking, language does not affect views. You cannot teach someone to respect autistic people by being careful about language. You can only sort of freeze them out of the conversation Um, So what I would say is, rather than having any particular language that I like, I accept anything I am called coming from a place of respect. Mm. Wow. That's a great answer. Thank you for that. Okay, um, those are all the opening questions. So I think we're going to jump into the first timestamp of Good Doctor. So when you get to about 23 minutes and 10 seconds give it a pause and then I'll follow up with a couple questions. 23 minutes and 10 seconds. Yeah. A surgeon needs to communicate, not just information, but sympathy. 
Empathy. Can Dr. Murphy do that? You can't even reliably show up for a job interview. Are you going to sit here and tell us that there were no other equally qualified young surgeons? Surgeons without this one's issues. No. Which is why, exactly why, we should hire Sean. We should hire him because he is qualified and because he is different. How long ago was it that we wouldn't hire black doctors in this hospital? How, how long ago was it that we wouldn't hire female doctors at this hospital? So you're comparing being African-American or a woman with being autistic. Please, go on. Okay. The rationalization is exactly the same. Words like temperament and, oh no, oh, how are the patients going to react? Aren't we judged by how we treat people? I don't mean as doctors, I mean as people. Especially those who, who don't have the same advantages that we have. We hire Sean and we give hope to those people with limitations that those limitations are not what they think they are. That they do have a shot! We hire Sean and we make this hospital better for it. We hire Sean and we are better people for it. We'd be better people spending a lot more on malpractice insurance. I believe I'm at the right point. Okay. Um, so just a couple of questions regarding mm -hmm. related to that kind of. Uh, can you recall a particular time where communication was a barrier that you had to overcome? Yes, always. Always. Mm -hmm. Communication has always been a barrier that I had to overcome. Uh, it's not obvious from the way I talk right now, but I have pretty severe speech impediments. Um, I have since childhood. I've learned to talk around them. I naturally have a what is known as a frontal lisp that happens because the tongue's positioned in the wrong place when it touches it touches or nearly touches the teeth. Mm. So I have I had a very pronounced lisp when I was a child. Um, I still have it when I'm tired or stressed right now. I also have a bit of a, a what is known as a lateral lisp when uh, sound, the air comes over the side of the tongue, we see lateral lisp. Right, right. Um, and that tends to come out whenever I'm distracted or explaining something. I also have what is known as uh, uh, temporary mutism, which is a condition mostly found in children with anxiety. Uh, yeah, I, I still suffer it as an adult, and basically what it is, is that when I am emotionally overloaded, I lose the ability to talk, um, sometimes for several hours, mm. um, to the point where uh, in my teens, I actually knew quite a bit of sign language because it was an easier way to communicate with my mother. Right. And you, if you could understand basic things like I'm, I'm hungry or I'm tired or I'm, 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 I need to, need to be, be alone right now, I could communicate that through sign language. I have always struggled to be able to express myself, mm -hmm. especially when it was most important to, because I find these kinds of situations very overwhelming. Um, I often shut down in basic everyday situations when it happens when I'm at the store and someone talks to me suddenly or when trying to answer a waitress under pressure. Right. And I 
you know, like I have had staff of restaurants flip out at me and get angry with me because I wasn't able to talk. And there is a very basic assumption that we have both that uh, the way that someone is capable capable of like what they are capable is sort of like consistent over Mm -hmm. time like we expect if somebody is able to hold an intelligent conversation on monday they should be able to hold an intelligent conversation on tuesday so failures of that kind where one someone is able to talk then simply stops talking we tend to see that as obstinance or refusal rather than a sudden loss of ability Uh, but likewise we have this um, conflation of intelligence with the ability to express we see speech and fluency of speech as intelligence in many ways. We often portray stupid characters on television as ones that are inarticulate or even have very much have speech impediments. Um, But the reality is that someone can be much smarter than their ability to portray themselves. Mm. Wow, yeah, I'm I'm sorry that those um, incidents happened where people flip out at you. I think that's, that's, I mean, I've also had tons of people mistake me for deaf and then we're just very nice about it. (laughs) I've had some very, very more nice people than not. They're like, well, she clearly is not capable of talking. I'm going to mouth everything at this Mm -hmm. person. And I'm just like, I'm going to need you to say that out loud. I can't read that. (laughs) (laughs) They're very kind. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so what do you think should be done to reduce communication barriers between your typical individuals and those with ASD? I mean, it kind of reminds me of, do you know the difference between a dialect and a language? Mm. It's partially a matter of linguistics, but it's also to a heavy degree a matter of politics. So there are, there are languages that are considered separate languages that are still basically mutually intelligible, meaning someone who speaks one understands the other. Mm-hmm. So there are plenty of those that are considered separate languages. So I, the example I would point to is um, Danish, Norwegian, and Swedish, all of which, you know, if, you, if you're a Swedish person, you can understand Norwegian and Danish and vice versa. Um, But those are separate languages because we associate them with separate countries. Uh, Then there are languages like Chinese, uh, Mandarin Chinese and Cantonese Chinese, which are way more different than any Scandinavian and any of these three Scandinavian languages, but are still considered to be the same language. Right. And because of, you know, political reasons. And when we sort of look at how neurotypicals think and how autistics think and how they communicate, part of the issue is um, usually when there is a uneven mutual intelligibility, such as what happens with Spanish and Portuguese. Mm. So Spanish and Portuguese are very similar. They're not completely the same language, but they're very similar. They're in between 
sort of the Scandinavian languages and the Chinese languages in terms of like who understands who. But Portuguese people understand Spanish way better than Spanish people understand Portuguese. Mm. This is for a simple reason. They have more exposure to it. And something very similar happens with like Canada and the US. Like Canadians understand American politics much better than Americans understand Canadian politics. And so part of the issue when we're talking about, you know, what can people do to understand autistic people? Part of it's just being more familiar. Part of it is not only interacting more with autism as a concept, but also increasing the ability to recognize it in people you already know so that you can sort of have it as a paradigm um, where you where you recognize it in the future and respond accordingly. So it's partially just autistics have far more experience understanding neurotypical people than right. neurotypical people do understanding autistics. Hmm. Because autistics, as much as we talk about not having quite the same capacity for quickly learning social skills that neurotypical people do, they nonetheless, we nonetheless understand each other quite well. Mm. Um, And that's because of a fundamental similarity of mind, but also a certain familiarity of mind. So, you know, it's not possible for a neurotypical person to just be more autistic. That's not useful advice to them. (laughs) Mm. But increased familiarity such as you know watching more television shows that have explicitly autistic characters can really help neurotypical people pinpoint um how autistic people communicate and what strategies work best for that kind of interneurological communication Mm. yeah no i was just saying that's like that's really great advice um that individuals with ASD definitely have more exposure and know how to deal with uh, neurotypical individuals, whereas the other way around uh, definitely lacks familiarity. So yeah, thank you for that. That's such a great answer. Um, I think that's everything for that scene. Um, The next scene is episode seven of season one. Scaring him. You're scaring him. You're scaring him. Dr. Sean Murphy? This patient is psychotic, Dr. Murphy. He's not psychotic. You don't like people touching you. He's not psychotic. He's autistic. Um, <laughs> so how do you think the general public re- perceives individuals with autism? And do you think it's changed over the years for better or worse? I think there's a gap between how people perceive, like, I think, I think there's on a basic level, neurotypical people perceive autism more than they once did. Partially due to increases in awareness of it, but also due to the expanded definition that came in 1994. Mm. Um, My joke tends to be, 
that I wasn't autistic until I was four. <laughs> the uh, the meaning being that that was when the expansion of the term came, right. when we started realizing that there wasn't actually this discrete singular condition analogous to Down syndrome that we were calling autism, but rather that it was a spectrum of traits that were highly variable among individuals. And I think that can be shown by old diagnostic standards where we basically had like three different catch-all terms and also a separate catch-all catch-all, BDD-NOS, pervasive development disorder, not otherwise specified. So we had the broad spectrum of, like we had several different broad spectrums and also this, you know, atypical autism diagnosis. (laughs) which sort of revealed that we really did not know enough about autism to try to be defining it more particularly and more specifically. Mm -hmm. So I think that there has been a huge shift in how people perceive autism. And I would also say that it's largely positive, but there's still very much a gap between what people recognize as autism and what people like have been socially trained to respect, to um, take care of, to be kind to, and more atypical slash subtle and the most severe um, expressions of autism. Uh, What I mean in the first case, when I mean very, very subtle traits of being autistic, is often the kinds of social behavior that we very much make fun of, that we socially deride, can be, in fact, autistic. It can be very autistic. And you can see this in old attitudes towards a nerd culture. Mm. And we used to see being nerdy as this incredibly awkward, incredibly socially inept thing. Um, so early nerd culture is predominantly autistic and ADHD mm. uh, in terms of its social norms, where extremely odd, extremely pedantic behavior was not only seen as normal, but valued within those, these, these niche communities. And as more, like as nerdity has been mainstreamed, uh, you know, and more uh, neurotypical people have latched onto it and taken it up. It has both become some a, a space for normalizing certain autistic behaviors, but also pushing into what was once a pseudo safe space for autistic people um, mm. and other neuroatypical uh, social expressions. Mm. So I think that there's often a case where when somebody is socially inept but not explicitly labeled, uh, they can end up still getting bullied for these behaviors because there is a gap between we've normalized the idea that you should be respectful towards obviously disabled people, Mm. but we still have not translated that completely into an understanding that you should normalize these behaviors and these behaviors should be acceptable or at the very least not openly mocked right. um, no matter who has them or why because you will not not only because you will not necessarily be able to spot a autistic person when you see one mm-hmm. but also because 
it's okay for people who aren't autistic to have weird, awkward obsessions. That's also fine. <laughs> you shouldn't need an explicit label to treat someone like a human being. Um, and then there's this, this other end of things where we've sort of developed this, part of the problem is that like it, it's such a broad spectrum that you have people with vastly different interests. Mm -hmm. So we have this, I mean, I've heard it sort of referred to as the super crip um, stereotype within disabled circles, uh, which, you know, can sound a bit disrespectful, but that, that's, that's the term that we use amongst ourselves when we're being blunt and blind to social norms. Mm -hmm. um, it sort of refers to like this Sherlock Holmes or the good doctor um, where disability is seen as sort of this mild superpower where this person is able to overcome a lot of their deficits through this like hyper-skilled almost um, it, like savant uh, aspect of their lives. And I, I think that these are they, like these are very real narratives where there are a lot of disabled people who and especially neuroatypical people who are by the very nature of their divergent neurology are capable of making unique uh, contributions to various fields because they think differently from the people around them. They take different steps at problem solving and they can end up being uniquely valuable. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's also not the vast majority of us. <laughs> right. And when we overly rely on this idea of you don't have to, like you, disabled people are capable of doing even more than non-disabled people, you can end up accidentally reinforcing a narrative that it is only through this additional value to society that we are justified taking up space. Mm. And the reality is that some people with autism can never contribute more to society than they take. That's mm. gonna be a reality for some disabled people. And we need to have a robust defense of their right to be within society that does not rely on them paying us back in the end. Right. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. Thank you. Um, next scene is at nine minutes and 40 seconds till 10 minutes and 40 seconds on the same episode. The differential diagnosis for biliary tree scarring includes primary sclerosing liver failure, secondary to primary biliary cirrhosis. Yeah, Sean, we can add a few cancers to that list as well. It's a long and ugly one. Find another way to figure out what it is. Do an MRI. No, we couldn't. It's not possible. First time I've ever heard you say that. Liam is stimming. Stimming. The tics and spasms are a neurological response to stress. If he's doing an MRI, there is stress. If there is stress, he won't keep still. If he won't keep still, we can't do an MRI. Therefore, it is impossible. Maybe if you just keep talking to him like that, he'll doze off and it'll all be simple. Give him a mild sedative. He didn't respond well to midazolam during the RCP, the process of breathing. His respiratory saturation can't be properly monitored inside. I get it. He could die in the MRI and we wouldn't know. 
You're just going to have to find a different way to calm him. Okay, we'll do it. Guess he has an idea. Well, that's very cute. <laughs> um, so, have you ever experienced something similar or any similar challenges with patient care? Um, well, I don't know if I've ever been in a situation where I couldn't calm down to the point where medical uh, intervention became difficult. That being said, I did have asthma as a very young child. And apparently when I was two years old, they stuck me in a tube in order to uh, examine my, uh, my, my lungs. Mm. Apparently I screamed the entire time. <sighs> that's, that's to be expected from a very young child. Yes. It was very hard on my mother. <laughs> oh. um, that was not autism specific, I don't think. Right. But you can run into a lot of these issues uh, interacting with uh, medical care. Um, I specifically, I, I've never had a problem with doctor doctors. Mm. I've never had an issue with um, those kinds of things, uh, like uh, GPs, etc. Because my mother, when I was very young, and I didn't have much control over my uh, ability to express myself, you know, my mother was always in charge. And my mother, like, she's not, what's the term people have been using, Karen, uh, she is not your classical Karen, but you know she she still is a um, a, a white a middle aged white woman, and you still get a uh, I believe a class bonus in relentless haranguing, and so she could just turn it on <laughs> at the drop of a hat, right. and she, she she was very good at pushing past. Uh, people who thought I didn't need medical attention or people who were resistant to actually um, inspecting me and seeing what was wrong. Right. Uh, when I was older, I started to run into issues with psychiatrists. Mm. Um, specifically, I had difficulty convincing them that I genuinely needed a diagnosis. Um, this was not specifically with autism, but with other things. Right. Um, it, it would, was difficult to get them to take me seriously. Uh, and part of that is when you're a patient and you already have preconceptions of what you have and et cetera, et cetera, even if they're coming from what previous doctors have told you, um, when people are experts in their field, they can be a little t territorial, arrogant. I don't know, <laughs> but there can be people who are used to being the expert, people who are used to being um, being the one in charge. They can be a little condescending, especially to people who have previous mental health diagnosis. Um, and that's usually not intentional. It's usually not uh, a, a, a conscious desire to minimize your problems but it can be an issue where the average doctor by definition is somebody who has not had the maximum amount of problems in life. Right. Uh, so they can lack the background to be sympathetic and empathetic to somebody with severe mental health issues. Um, or they can, by bias, assume that you are irrational. Mm. So I once had a psychiatrist who just gonna say that she was I don't know if I'm off topic but uh, she was um, 
normally there is a problem where when people receive therapy, they can become overly dependent on therapy because they are so relieved after and so happy after coming out of a of a therapist's office, there's this, this good catharsis that happens. Mm-hmm. It is normal to feel better when coming out of a therapist's office than worse. I had a psychiatrist who made me cry three times. Oh my goodness. And psychiatrists are not therapists. <laughs> they are medical doctors with two years of psychiatric rotation. If you want a therapist, you go to a psychologist who will usually have a master's in psychology, which is, you know, six to seven years of mental health training. (laughs) Um, And I had gone to the facility that had recommended me to her. And I was just like, I need a referral like right now. (laughs) I need, because she would just... Every time I mentioned a, a something I was doing, I was mentioning like I'm working as a translator. I was mentioning, um, you know, enjoying stand-up ho- comedy as a hobby, which is something I get paid for now. That that's something I now do professionally. Mm-hmm. And she would just I have a lot of obscene words coming to mind. She would just dump on those kinds of things Mm. like they were stupid or irrational and that they weren't worthy of my time or maybe that I wasn't good enough at them Mm. with no experience at my ability to tell jokes uh no no relevant experience on my ability as a translator she would just be utterly dismissive and she would draw me specifically into conversations about those topics which were not not what I wanted to talk about I wanted a query of ADHD (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wanted to know whether or not I should be on Ritalin (laughs) Mm -hmm. and she spent a large portion of our time together just ripping into my personal passions which is very hard as an autistic person they are incredibly important to me Mm -hmm. um and after I asked for a referral, they're like, oh, well, it's going to take you four months to get another person. Oh my. Don't care. I want a referral. Right. Um, you should not feel destroyed after a appointment with a medical professional, especially right. not a psychological. Like, it, it's one thing if they're like, you have cancer. You're like, okay, you're like, you can feel devastated by that. But right. it shouldn't just be like, hi, I'm your, I'm your occupational therapist. Your dreams are bull. Yeah. <laughs> no completely. And, yeah. Yeah. And afterwards she she called me personally. Oh my gosh. And tried to harangue me and bully me into coming back to her sessions. So you can end up in situations as an autistic person where you get bullied into medical treatment you do not want (laughs) from people who feel like you will just give in because of your psychological frailties. Mm, That's awful. Yeah, like I, I am somebody who is easy to bully. I am somebody who is a bit of a doormat. It is not hard to get me to do something that I don't want to do. (laughs) I mean, up to a point. (laughs) I'm a very good comedian, I'll have you know. I got paid money a couple times. Other times I got paid in Spanica pita. (laughs) That's delightful Greek food. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know you couldn't see me um, while you were talking about that psychiatrist, but the whole time I was just shaking my head and I was like, this is so ridiculous. And I'm, I'm sorry that you had to experience that. And I think there's lots of good doctors out there, but there's definitely the vast majority of them. Yeah, yeah, totally. There's definitely... It's just a very vulnerable position to be in. It's a position of power for a reason. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, that's true. Thank you for sharing those stories. Um, I think to the next scene, it's still same episode, so that's handy. It's at 19 minutes and 35 seconds. 19.35. Where are we going to? To 20.20. (laughs) Oh no. Yeah. 2020, I can't do that again. <laughs> Me neither. Fine. I failed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's about that. You were hesitant with this kid even before that. You asked me to do the RCP. Doctors don't have to like their patients, Claire. You don't like him? I don't know him. Sean. There's something else going on here. I know you know that. No, no, no. He has the same condition you have. You have never met anyone with. Do you like all people with psoriasis? <laughs> I don't have. Yes, you do. And you can never get rid of it. It's too bad you don't like him. Because I think he likes you. Not only that, I think he looks up to you. So you know how he thinks. Not as much as you probably do. Perfect, perfect. Um, so what does a connection to the ASD community mean to you? What do I feel about my relationship with other autistic people? Yeah, like, does having that community, uh, that connection to that community help you? Are you involved in communities? Hi. Yes and no. Like, it did help me a lot when I was younger. Mm. And I think the internet, in a lot of ways, has allowed what is a naturally very geographically diasporific, spread out uh, community, actually have communications, actually have culture within them. Mm. Um, I, I wouldn't say, however, that I tend to socialize more so with autistics than I do other people or that I tend to specifically seek out autistic spaces Mm. what I have found rather is that I tend to find autistics everywhere I go Mm. so a lot of my best friends in university had autism a lot of my best friends in comedy now have autism and I sometimes wonder if it's that we're attracted to the same things that we we go to the same places like debate societies and 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 comedy clubs or if it's that there's a certain number of autistic people everywhere and we have a tendency to find each other out of a certain mutual understanding my my best friend calls it spectruition it's the uh, autistic version of gaydar (laughs) (laughs) um so i I would say that i read a lot of autistic literature i read a lot of autistic you know news reports and academia etc but that my relationships with specifically groups uh, formed for people with autism Mm. is somewhat narrow 
okay, okay. It's obviously, it's 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 one of those things I also uh, found with the the queer community where gay isn't a personality type, and it's not a common interest. <laughs> right. So, if if you want to make queer friends, you need to find queer friends who actually have the same interests as you. Yeah. So I would say that um, one of the reasons I don't predominantly socialize with the autistic community per se, and one of the reasons I, I, I find myself in non-autistic spaces alongside other autistics is because those are autistic people who have interests compatible to mine. And we live now more so in an age where one can be openly autistic, where one can be unabashedly autistic. And even if you don't explicitly call yourself that, you can behave in an autistic manner in public and still be socially accepted and embraced. Mm -hmm. So I have found it not necessarily that I engage a lot with the autistic community, but that the autistic community is more visible now than it was when I was a child. Right. And we are experiencing a reversal of that thing that always happens in every elementary school where there's tons of other disabled kids in your grade, in kindergarten, grade one, but one by one, they start to slowly disappear from our social lives as they get shuttled off into more specialized programming mm -hmm. for you know, entirely understandable reasons usually. But that nonetheless means that our social space as teenagers becomes gradually um, pruned of disabled influences. Right. Meaning, and I, th I think that's genuinely one of the reasons why a lot of adults have trouble socializing with obviously disabled people is because we stop being socialized in our interactions with the especially moderately and severely disabled people at a very young age that leaves us with only these very rudimentary tools for engagement. So, and, and, and I would likewise point that there is this broader community of uh, neuroatypical people that I think have made common cause with people with autism that I, I've likewise found myself socializing with more and more. Right. Um, you know, my, I, I have tons of friends with ADHD and uh, one of my closest friends actually has uh, borderline personality disorder. Hmm. And I, I think that there are lots of little ways that every one of us sees these people in everyday life. And they can be very enriching once we learn to open up and engage with them. Right. Completely, yeah. I have no idea if I answered the question appropriately. Yeah, no, you definitely that, that being said, uh, as a reflection of the particular clip, uh, I do kind of get this sort of feeling of like watching another autistic person and feeling very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, that's absolutely something I experience. And I, I would say that it's comes from this deep place of empathy, to be honest, mm -hmm. where... I will feel such strong secondhand embarrassment watching somebody do something that I would absolutely do. <laughs> right. Where it's just like, oh, 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 oh. like there's a, like, you know, there's an 
there's like an anger there, but it's not about them. It's about you. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Like you are, you are too similar to me to be doing that. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> um, no, but I, th- I think your answer to the question is, it totally makes sense. Um, not in specific to ASD community, but you have your own interests and there's a big population of ASD, uh, people with ASD and you find them there instead of, diving into just ASD community and finding mm-hmm. yeah yeah but yeah and the last scene for this uh for good doctor is still on the same episode at 27:35 Sean's different he also has savant syndrome he has a remarkable memory he has autism same as our son same limitations you saw what happened to our son in the MRI He knew he needed to lie still, but he couldn't. Now, what happens if Dr. Murphy breaks down like that while he's standing over my son at an operating table? You know your son. I know surgeons. And after working with Dr. Murphy, after challenging him in surgery and everywhere else, probably more than he deserved, I can tell you he has my complete confidence. Okay. Um, so what do you think about the statement, he has autism, same as her son, same limitation? I think that's a common assumption. I think that the average person has a pretty basic model, mental model of what illness is. And that illnesses, regardless of severity, are analogous. Like, there is the old saying, you know, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism, and that is insanely true. Mm. The reality is, when we are talking about autism, we are undoubtedly, even if we cannot make distinctions, talking about a wide range of fundamentally different conditions on some level that all have very similar outcomes. And I think this is a logic we apply to a lot of different conditions. Um, This is the logic we apply to like everything from autism to ADHD to like bone spurs. We, We tend to group things like ADHD, like nearsightedness, like bone spurs into uh, soft disabilities. Um, and non-severe disabilities. And we tend to group like autism in sort of a moderate range. And we, we, we tend to generalize, especially from what we have previously seen. We will, and the average person uh, does not know that many autistics. They do not know that many people with ADHD. Like they've definitely met a whole bunch Um, But having, it's very rare to have that many close personal relationships with somebody who you explicitly know they have this condition. It's going to be more common, but it's still very rare. And it is entirely understandable for the average person to extrapolate from the one or two instances they know of a particular condition and to extrapolate that into their engagement with the condition everywhere else in life. Right. 
it makes sense when you only have so many examples of something to prioritize your own anecdotal experience of what something looks like. Um, you know, I can, I can say personally, like, I know many people with ADHD because it runs in my family. There are people uh, like my younger sister who are, you know, they, they force themselves to be very organized. Um, they have to be on medication, but it's not really a big deal if they don't take it one day. Uh, and I also know people like my boyfriend who uh, every once in a while I will show up at his house. Uh, he will be in the middle of his study, completely naked. Mm -hmm. uh, we will hold an entire conversation and then he'll look at me, he'll ask, why am I naked? Mm. And <laughs> it's the sort of conversation, it was the sort of interaction that if you had that with a 90 year old person, you would assume dementia. <laughs> right. Where he will forget what we are talking about four times within the same conversation if he is not on his medication. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's a very natural tendency to, because, because the world is big and complicated and because there are is too much for any one mind to fully understand, right. it is very reasonable to try to understand the world in broad heuristics that take the weight of cognition off of us. Um, okay. What's important is actually to give people multiple examples of this so that, and like disparate examples of this. Like we often get on like this or that depiction of autism as stereotypical and, and not every autistic person is like that. And here's the thing, no, it's okay to have some stereotypical elements in any one depiction of autism because no one person is going to completely diverge from every single stereotype about their group. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's absurd, you know? Right. That, that you need to just have enough depictions with enough variety within them mm -hmm. in order to disabuse these kind, this kind of stereotyping, this kind of unmalicious stereotyping. Right. Like, like I myself has been on the receiving end of like some fairly condescending behavior because of my autism diagnosis and from people who should very well know that I'm quite smart. <laughs> mm. it, it's just, it is a natural tendency for the, given the simplicity of the human mind, which is still incredibly impressive as a computer and the complexity of reality, people will make assumptions. People will have stereotypes. The question is whether or not we can introduce enough nuance into their media diet and to, into their interactions. Yeah, totally, completely agree with that. I um, there's a follow up question, but I think you've pretty much covered it well. Um, I'll just repeat it in case you want to add something. Um, do you think that the experiences and challenges faced by individuals with autism are similar or different? Um, and in what ways are they similar or different? Do you have any examples? Could you repeat that? It was... Yeah. Um, do you think that the experiences or challenges faced by individuals with autism are similar or different? And in what yes. ways? Yes. Similar? The answer to that is yes. Mm. They're similar and different. <laughs> I, I would say that while a lot of autistics experiences can be analogous, um, where you come from really has a big effect. Like people often mention that 
they're like, oh, you know, I would describe you as very autistic, but at the same time, like very functional, um, which, which is to say, like, when I, when, when people say that I have mild autism, they don't mean that I'm not like very obviously autistic. They just mean that, you know, like I can go to the store by myself uh, and I can drive a car, <laughs> right. which, which is, I, I think what they're kind of getting at is that you can be very, very distinctly autistic and still have had the resources and the support you needed in order to be very functional. Like one of the interesting things for me when you're looking at older autistic people is that it's very hard to separate um, from our definition of what autism is, um, these, these, you know, like the symptoms of being just baseline autistic, it's very hard to separate those out from what is the symptoms of being a traumatized autistic person. Mm. Because there are a lot of, especially older autistic people who the nature of their condition led them to become victimized or led them to become neglected or led them to experience extreme stress early in life or prevented them from uh, maturing or developing in very key ways. So when people look at someone like me uh, and they say like, oh, well, you're very functional. I say, well, yes, I had an extremely family. Mm. I grew up in a situation of full-throated support, very loving, very caring. Even if I wasn't diagnosed for a very long time, there was a certain understanding that I was different and I was accommodated. Right. So I, I would say, and I, and I would also say that autistic, the things that autistic people go through are not different from what neurotypicals go through in kind. Mm. They are different in degree. Mm. Neurotypical people experience loneliness. Neurotypical people experience bullying. Neurotypical people experience social awkwardness mm -hmm. and experience obsession. Right. The question is not, because autistic people fundamentally, the autistic community, the, the autistic condition is just a variation of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And the problems autistics face are the problems that human beings face. They are just to a degree that we have decided as a community to specifically point out and triage resources towards. Um, like if, if, if society one day decides like, we're no longer gonna consider people who are as disabled as Jessica to be disabled, because that's not going to be a priority of our resources anymore. Like that doesn't make me not autistic. That just means that I have no, I no longer fit our medical and legal definition of disability. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think there's just a lot of neurotypical people who like, they, they, they find a lot of empathy with what autistic people go through. Right. Thank you. Honestly, I'm I'm so very glad that this is all being recorded because everything you're saying is honestly resonating with me a lot. And you are so eloquently spoken. I'm so amazed because 
I, I had a job interview the other day and I'm like, I was so frustrated because I couldn't express myself. It, and I don't know, and, and you're doing it so well and everything you're saying like really rings true to my heart. So oh. I, yeah. Yeah. See, I also had a job interview the other day, but it was a public sector job interview. Wow. And the best thing about public sector job interviews is that you don't actually need to have social skills. You just need the ability to describe social skills. And that's, <laughs> that's where I shine. <laughs> so it's perfect. <laughs> uh, hopefully you hear good news from them. <laughs> um, yeah, I think mine too. <laughs> perfect. Sounds good. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you.